Lord, we invite you to speak to us, your people. We pray that ancient prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Speak, Father, for your children are listening. We give you permission to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our minds, to open our hearts, and we lay our understandings, we lay our knowledge and our preferences and our opinions before you, and we ask for you to reorient us away from all of the stories of the world, all of the stories of our world, all of, all of the stuff and especially in this Christmas season that in our culture often looks nothing like the nativity. Lord, we ask that you would position us and anchor us in your story as we remember your first advent to this earth. Stand in my body, think with my mind, Speak with my tongue those things that you would have us know, say, and do. And it's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Obviously, we are in a new season as a local church, a like lower KC church, as we've talked about being here, starting uh, a new chapter, in a new season, in a new space, in a new uh, time. And uh, I'm so excited for that. I remember in the summer going to my friend Ryan, who moved, he just moved to Oxford, and he was having a going away party in Dallas, and he, um, him and his wife have a band called Liturgical Folk, and we, they invited us to go to their farewell concert. There was about 100 people in this old Episcopal chapel in, in, in uh, Dallas, and I just remember sitting in this space that was much smaller than this and just crying the entire time because I had forgot what it felt like to be in a space, to be in God's house, and to hear God's people sing to him. And I just sat there and wept. And when it was over, like, I, like we needed to leave. It was like 9.30 at night. We needed to get back home. We had a long drive ahead of it. I just didn't want to leave. I just didn't want to leave the house of the Lord because it just felt so good to be with his people. And I'm excited to reinstall that rhythm as, as a church. There's also a new season as the, as the church, as the capital C church. We are in a new year in the church. You know, in, in the world, we tend to mark the new year on January 1, or if you're in the military, the year starts on October 1, or, or maybe you're in a business and you start your books on, on um, July 1, or maybe you're a teacher and the school year starts in August. But in the church, it starts in Advent. Advent is the beginning of a new year, it, we find our beginning in, in the beginning of Christ's story here. And it is a powerful antidote to all of the calendar narratives that the world tells us. And actually, technically, this is the second Sunday of Advent, we, but we didn't meet last week, so kind of, but it, to me, it feels like it's the first, but it's actually the second. I wanna um, highly commend to you two resources that I'm just gonna say uh, it's homework and you, you should really dig into it. And they're on our Sunday bulletin. Um, one of them is a podcast that you can listen to and one of them is an article. The first one is about the civic calendar versus the church calendar. It's by a guy by the name of W. David O. Taylor. How's that for a name? 
David Taylor is a Anglican priest and scholar up in Austin. He is a professor at Fuller Seminary, studied under Eugene Peterson, if you know Peterson. We're big heroes of Peterson here. And he's friends with Bono, that garage band singer from, from Ireland. And um, when David talks, you don't realize you're listening to a scholar because he's such an artist. And, but I recently heard an interview where he was talking about um, the, 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 the formative aspects of the American civic calendar and like what, what it does to you when on rhythm you were told, starting January 1, you have a new beginning and the new beginning actually starts with you and you get to decide what that new beginning is and then a couple of weeks later there's Valentine's Day and there's a whole narrative about Valentine's Day and then there's Easter, and then there's Mother's Day, and then there's Memorial Day, and then there's Father's Day, and then there's uh, Independence Day, and then there's Labor Day, and, and, and Thanksgiving, and Black Friday, you would add to that, and Cyber Monday, and, and you go on through the list up to New Year, Christmas Day and New Year's Eve. And I, don't, I, don't, I haven't run into many Christians who have actually understood how formative that rhythm is. It's so subtle. And he contrasts that with what for 2,000 years the church has offered, which is actually we want to reorient our life not around the civic calendar or the market-driven calendar or the consumeristic um, commercial calendar, but by the life of Jesus, by his nativity, by his um, appearing to his disciples, by his 40 days in the desert, by his Holy Week, by his resurrection by him pouring out the Holy Spirit. And it is, I've never heard anybody really talk through that in a compelling way. Usually it's like boring and I need a strong cup of coffee to make it through the book. But I wanna, if you've never thought about the importance of the Christian year and the, just I'll say it, the dangers of being sucked into the, the, the civic calendar, which isn't always bad, you just need to know how it's forming you, highly recommend that podcast. It's linked on our bulletin. And then uh, there's another article that he wrote called um, Why Putting Christ Back in Christmas Isn't Enough. And he details out how what we know as Americans in Christmas is just so far from what Matthew and Luke give us in uh, the New Testament. Um, in, the, in, in Matthew and Luke, the story of Jesus' nativity there's suffering everywhere. There's an infanticide. The Holy Family are, are become refugees on the run. And yet, in our culture, Christmas is about the ideal family and this extravagance and buying so much stuff that we don't even need and going into debt, buying things. And it's really counter to the true story of the nativity of Christ. And, and some would argue that the church has really lost the ability to lead in celebrating the nativity of our Lord. And uh, while I do think it is the most wonderful time of the year, and while we do have a nine-foot inflatable Snoopy in our yard at the same time, and a Mr. Potato Head, and a Mickey Mouse, and a Wiener Dog, and Frosty the Snowman, all of those, check Instagram for proof later. And while we love that, at the same time, we must also recognize that when Christ came here on the earth, it was not the most wonderful time. And in fact, Herod was so uh, threatened by it that he murdered many children and that the Holy Family became refugee families, became a refugee family. And, and so if you've ever thought about that, that link's there. Welcome to church. 
Sorry to sober you up, but uh, today's sermon title is Roll Out the Red Carpet for Fire and Soap. You ever heard that title? Turn to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to read from three texts today, an Old Testament text, Malachi chapter 3, the next to last chapter of the Old Testament, and then we'll jump to Luke 3 and then finish up in Philippians chapter 1. It'll be super quick, super short, and um, the title is Roll Out the Red Carpet for fire and, and soap. Welcome to Advent. A little bit of history on Malachi. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians. And with the destruction of the temple in the, in the ancient world, God's presence had left the temple. And then they rebuilt the temple, but God's presence never returned. And so in Malachi's day, you have a temple, you have a clergy class where there's corruption. They have, as, as, as a Australian theologian Alan Hirsch would call, all the paraphernalia that comes with church, right? That all the things that come with doing church, and yet they didn't have God's presence, which is like such a tragedy. To have everything to do church and not have God's presence, what a horror. And so in Malachi's day, they have the temple, they have priests, they have offerings, they have their liturgies, they have their stuff, they have people, they have a church, and yet they don't have God's presence. And this is what Malachi says to them. Chapter three, verse one. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord who you seek will suddenly come to his temple. In the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And before you get too excited about this messenger, verse two, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, Levi's tribe being the tribe that the priest came from. So he's talking here that, that this refiner and this purifier will also purify the priests, those leading in the temple. And he will refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Of course, now, being on this side of history, we understand that Malachi was talking about John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. He was predicting that there would come a messenger who would come and prepare the way for God as he came, as his presence came back to the temple and that that messenger would be marked by fire and soap. That messenger would have some strong words. That messenger would have a baptism of, of repentance. And one of the things to note here is if you have a Bible like I do, uh, the next chapter is the last chapter of the Old Testament. And this page right here, this little bitty page, is 400 years of silence. How about that? Malachi saying, God's presence is gonna come and it's gonna be like fire and soap. Get ready. And then 400 hundred years go by where nothing happens. 
The priests continue to be corrupt. The temple continues to be absent of God's presence. And brutal rulers continue to dominate over God's people. 400 years. Jump to Luke chapter three. Here's the voice. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of some cities I can't pronounce except for Abilene because I'm a Texan. Verse two, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, so see what he did there, he just anchored this messenger in who's ruling politically and their brutal rule, if you know it. And then who's in charge in the temple? Annas and Caiaphas. During the high priesthood of these two, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That was the message of fire and soap that the, that the red carpet needed to be rolled out on. What's interesting is that literally God's presence did come. In Jesus, God's presence came into the temple at day eight. Eight days into Jesus' life, he's Mary and Joseph bring him to the temple and present him. At age 12, at his bar mitzvah, he, during the Passover, gets away from the caravan and Mary and Joseph lose Jesus. I mean, how was that? You know, like you've had angels speak to you about this, that you're, you're gonna have the son of God and they go, to the, they go out of town during the festival and they lose Jesus. I would lose my mind. And yet they find Jesus and they, they kind of get onto him, it seems. And Jesus, 12 years old, says, I have to be in my father's house. You know, one of the things that I've noticed in Christians in the last 20 years is this dying desire to be in God's house. And I totally can understand and empathize. And yet Jesus says, I, I must be in my Father's house. And for Jesus, God's presence wasn't in the temple and there was massive corruption in the priesthood. And yet, 12-year-old Jesus says, where else would you find me? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Thank you. Things that don't happen when you're staring at a camera on a Thursday morning, it's great. Yeah. And then, of course, Jesus uh, begins his ministry, cleansing the temple, literally God's presence, fire and soap, purifying the temple. And then at the end of his ministry, he cleanses the temple. And then we see him throughout the temple teaching. 
And then what's really cool is after Pentecost, God's presence comes into God's people. And then in Acts 2, it says God's people who are now filled with the Holy Spirit, who are literally the temples of the Holy Spirit, it says that daily they met in homes and in the temple. And so God's presence through Pentecost is in God's people, the temple now, and then those little temples are in another temple. Just like today, God's presence is in, is in you. God's presence is here as we're gathered. God's presence is in this place that looks a lot like a temple, I think, in my imagination. This is what Malachi was talking about, and this is what John the Baptist was talking about. I'll close by asking you this question. What do you want for Christmas? Shari and I have this. Um, it's really Shari's thing. Is She wants it, the kids to get a picture with Santa every year. And so every year, as early as possible, we make the pilgrimage through suburgatory <laughs> outside 1604 and go to Bass Pro Shop to get a picture with Santa. Like we, before Thanksgiving, we get pictures with Santa. And we've done it every year. And so this year, you know, last year it was like Santa here, plexiglass and then kids 20 feet away. This year, there, there was no sitting on his lap. This year we were a little closer, but we're getting the pictures with Santa this year and Santa asked the question, what do you want for Christmas? Grayson just stood there. Like a minute goes by, Santa looks at me, he's like, what is wrong with you? Your kid hasn't thought, and he goes, a gift card? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, this is a question we ask children, what do you want for Christmas? I wanna ask you a different question. What do you want for Advent? Have you thought about what you want for Advent? Not in a material sense. But what would you like the Lord to do for you in your heart, your soul, your mind, this Advent? As his presence comes, that presence comes with a refining fire and with fuller soap. He's not finished with you. You are still the canvas and the clay. What do you want for Advent? In his letter to the Philippian church, Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless. This is what I want for you for Advent. In the same way that St. Paul wanted this for the Philippian church. I want this for myself and I want this for us that perhaps as we welcome God's presence this Advent, as we welcome and consent to the fire and soap of the Advent message. You know what I would love? That our love would grow more and more. We've lived through a gnarly 20 months where I can't remember a time more polarizing and divisive. We live in a time where there's so much shaming and judging and canceling and condemning. We live in a time where there's just so much trauma and heartache. 
And I think what God's church needs is not more doctrine, not more deeds. We need more love. That is the New Testament standard for maturity, is love. Paul said you could have, you could be a martyr, you could serve the poor, you could know everything, but if you don't have love, you're an annoying symbol. My prayer for us this Advent is that our love would abound more and more. That we would have the knowledge and discernment to be able to approve what is excellent. And because of God's presence, we would be pure and blameless. The good news in all this is that there's actually nothing we can do to purify ourselves or to make ourselves blameless. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. My fa- one of my favorite hymns, Come Thou Fount, my favorite line in that is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. The good news, my, one of my favorite articulations of the good news is that there's nothing you can do to make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. And as we talk about love and purity and blamelessness, my friends, there's actually nothing you can do to even earn that It is something only God's presence can do. But you have to consent to it. You have to open yourself to it. He says, I stand at the door and knock. But what? He's not gonna beat the door down. You gotta open the door, Revelation says. For Malachi's audience, they needed to return to the Lord as God's presence returned to them. It wasn't just about God returning to the temple. It was about them returning to worship. For them, it was they needed to resume tithing and they needed to cease their cynicism. I wonder if Malachi were here today and he gave the same message, what would it be for us? What would it be for you? As we return to a more normal rhythm of worship and as we return to the start of the Christian year, and as we await God's presence, where do you need to return to him? Maybe it's the same as Malachi, but maybe it's different. And that's kind of the the homework I'd wanna give to you this week is to chew on this advent, what do you want? And how might God be asking you to return to him? Father, thank you for loving us so much that in our mess and in our sin, you moved towards us. That in Jesus, we have the return of your presence to the temple. And so much more than that, through the Spirit, we have the return of your presence inside of us. Be with us, God. Reveal to us specifically how you desire for us to be with you. We surrender this past season. We surrender the pain and the heartache and the trauma the anger, the discouragement, 
the exhaustion, the weariness, the being worn out, Lord, we come to you, those of us who are weary and heavy laden, and we need your rest. Deep in our souls, we need your rest. We need your rest, God.